1: Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Joanne Steen. Joanne's an author, instructor, and speaker on grief and loss with a specialty in military and line of duty losses. She's a board-certified counselor, military widow, and the founder of Grief Solutions, a training company on grief, loss, and resilience. Joanne's the author of two books on grief for Gold Star Families. In addition to We Regret to Inform You, which we'll be talking mostly about today, she's also co-authored with M. Regina Asaro, Military Widow, A Survival Guide, which earned them the Distinguished Authors of the Year Award from the United States Naval Institute. A skilled instructor, Joanne's worked with more than forty diverse organizations. Her clients have included the U.S. Department of Defense, the Canadian Armed Forces, and a host of federal, corporate, and nonprofit organizations. Welcome, Joanne. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm happy to have you and. Um, Really happy to be able to address this subject. I've had a few other guests that have have come on to talk about um, losses in the military, including injury uh, that doesn't kill service members. And I I think it's a subject most of us, as you mentioned in your book, are grossly uninformed about, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned only one percent of us even have a family member in the military, so I'm really happy to get this information out. Thank you. Um, so let's start here. You uh, the the way in which your personal story intersects with this program is that um, your own loss uh, sent you into the work you now do, and I wonder if we could we could start there. Uh, were you working with Grief and loss at all before your husband died, or, or did it really come out of that experience? Oh, gracious, no.
2: I have a very, no, Cheryl, my background is this is that essentially, if we go back 25, 26 years now, I had it all. I was one of those women that had it all. I was married to a Navy pilot. I had a very exciting job. I was working for the Navy. Um, I, had a, I was a senior military instructor. I was teaching technical courses. Sort of like, you know, Top Gun, except my students didn't look like Tom Cruise and I didn't look like <laughs> Kelly McGillis. <laughs> <All right. laughs> and uh, we just you know, we just signed a lease on a home that had a very sunny bed- bedroom, a bedroom, and we're thinking crib. And then, tragically, my husband was killed on a Father's Day weekend. He was a helicopter pilot. They were out on a training mission. The helicopter suffered catastrophic rotor head failure and it exploded in midair, and we lost a crew of seven. Uh, unfortunately, that was not the only loss I dealt with that year because just two months before that, my father died. Mm. And so it was loss upon loss, each different, but each person who in some way provided me with an emotional support, emotional connection that you couldn't be replaced.
1: So, so what the, I, peop- the people you would have talked to about losses in your life were the people you lost? Yes, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's one of the really excruciating parts of losing someone very close like that, uh, that that, um, that outlet is, it, it smacks you up against the loss in and of itself, it did, not, be, not like being able to access um, the support. Uh, absolutely. What I did was, in trying to sort all that out, and I didn't
2: do it very well, so I continued with the Department of the Navy as an instructor, and the Navy does see the world, and so I spent the next six, seven, eight years um, literally teaching and getting out of the country. And then finally, I basically burned myself off, out, and I left my engineering career, went back to school, and picked up an advanced degree in counseling. And uh, went to work in an inpatient psychiatric hospital until 9-11 happened.
0: Mm.
2: And then no, I grew up right outside of New York City. I was profoundly affected by 9-11. Plus, having lost a service member in a line of duty, I took an attack on America really seriously.
1: And, and probably probably, were aware that that would most likely lead to some military mm-hmm. losses. Absolutely. So what I did was I, I uh, co-authored Military Widow, a survival
2: guide, because that was the book I wanted when my husband was killed, and surprisingly, there's a void in both grief resource and grief literature on books that are focused specifically on military loss. Let's
1: talk about that a little bit because um, I happened to work uh, for um, a military uh, contract at one point, and so I had to get trained some in right. uh, in military language and, and, um, things I had no idea about before, Uh, you know, but then I I, had more of an idea. I do have one service member in my family, my brother-in-law, but, uh, he was always somewhere else in the world. So we never much talked about it. So I, I wonder if you could just give people a little bit of a sense of why military loss, uh, which you go into a lot in your book, why military loss has some different phenomenon from other losses? Absolutely, sure.
2: One of the things we have to remember is that the first basic premise is that with the military, with service members, it's not a job, it's they serve. And if you ask a lot of them what they do, they'll say, "I serve my country." And I worked for some very fine corporations in my life, but I never served any of those corporations. Mm -hmm. so the purpose of their service is important and that figures into trying to make meaning and find meaning in their death but the best way I found the best descriptive way I found to describe military loss and grief is with the concept of the perfect storm we hopefully have all seen the movie with George Clooney that's reason Mm -hmm. enough to go see it Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and in it he's standing on the bridge and he's faced with three Potent weather conditions, each of them alone are enough to wreak havoc. But when you put the, those three conditions converged on his boat, created this perfect storm. And that's what military grief is like. You know, the first thing you deal with is is the loss of your loved one. And when you look at who they are, they're young. Average age of casualties is 28. They're well-trained. They're well-equipped. They're doing something. They're a part of something bigger than themselves before they hit 30. Second thing you deal with is that they died, 80% of the military deaths are are sudden and traumatic, and they died, you know, they died, um, and I'm sorry, give me a moment here, but they died these sudden and traumatic deaths that were pretty much away from home, and as you know in your show here, you know, the the suddenness of the death is going to influence how you respond in the present. Of course, yes. Okay the circumstances of the death are going to impact what you have to deal with. Uh,
1: you know, I'm, I also was really, uh, I, I feel you invited me a little bit into the experience just by acknowledging it to the people that would be reading your book who are going through it. Sure. And um, I was thinking very much about how important it was to me to be with the body of my wife when she died, uh-huh. to um, be able to take care of that process, uh-huh. uh, I actually followed the um, the you know crematorium's vehicle uh-huh. all the way there. You know, <laughs> I was sure. I was very keen on kind of guiding her body, and the idea of of not only not being able to do that, but right. um, but having a very unpredictable timeline on even having your loved one's body returned to you. Uh, I just got a more visceral sense of the kind of impact that might have. Cause of course, what goes on around the death definitely impacts, especially early Greek. Oh,
2: sure. Sure. And you know, and, and I mentioned this in the book that some of those circumstances that are unique to the military the first one is the, is the casualty notification process, which on a good day is unnerving, but most times is traumatic. Because think about this. You're living at your home. If you're a parent, you're at your, your home of record, you know, probably where you raised your child, um, and you receive a very official notification from a service member representing the service branch, they're going to be in a dress type of uniform, probably a chaplain, and they're there to notify you of this life-wrecking life-wrecking news but that person in all likelihood wasn't on site so you don't have a first hand account mm-hmm. okay. yes the second thing is you have no proof yes okay you know you don't have anything you could see touch hold something that was destroyed you have no proof and then they are acting in this official capacity so the information they pass on to you is verified as fact but we know we know the power of the internet and, and the social media, and we know that things get disseminated on them very quickly. And, you know, there's when I was a Navy instructor, there's this first law of command is, nothing is ever as good or as bad as the first report.
1: And so that's, I imagine, a messi- message that military families have absorbed in other situations sure. that, that may complicate them actually believing it's happened. Sure, and, you know, there's the old adage
2: of bad news travels fast. So social media, you find out, okay, there was a casualty in the unit. Well, do we know who it is? No, but it might have been from this, this section over here. Well, how were they killed? Well, we don't know. Well, it might have been here. It might have been that. And those first elements of bad news very often aren't right. And so you have those that are adding to you know, the, the limited official information that you have or the fact that some of it's under investigation or it's classified, and you don't know what that is. For parents, you know, it's it's when a a child when a child is, you know, in danger, and it doesn't matter whether the parent is twenty years old with a newborn or eighty. Okay, um, their first reaction is those parent skills kick in. They're going to want to go protect their child. Of course, yes, and they can't
1: do that. And uh, another thing that really stood out to me was that just because you have a family member, your child in the military, that does not mean that you Mm -hmm. are somehow prepared or you've thought it through that this might happen. And that made sense to me because human beings adapt. Sure. Um, So if your kid is, you know, thousands of miles away serving in the military, your brain is going to protect you from the idea that that actually might happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even though we know it theoretically.
2: Right. Well, you know, the odds are, when you look at military service, the odds are that your service member is going to come home safely. But, you know, it's a dangerous profession, whether you're in combat, whether you're in a high-risk occupation like, you know, special operations, aviation, ordnance disposal. But as a military family, and I could speak from experience, is that you've got to believe in order to remain healthy in that environment you basically have to believe that they're going to come home because if you started worrying yourself sick that's another problem in and of itself and my husband my late husband assured me that if anything whatever happened in that aircraft he said essentially he said i'm well trained i'm well equipped and anything that happens in that aircraft i'm confident i'm going to get it on deck and so you say okay what do you want for dinner <laughs>
1: right for you sure know. you know there's a there are a few paragraphs from the preface and i want to highlight one one mm-hmm. part because it it also stood out um uh, Unknown to most Americans, most military deaths are laden with complications, not usually found in civilian losses, some of which we've just talked about. A sudden and potentially violent death far from home, limited details and classified information, an unnerving casualty notification process, separation from immediate family by distance or time, soul-searing military traditions to honor the fallen, and an onerous governmental bureaucracy – I I will confess that I had never directly thought about how painful military holidays, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. must be until I read your book. Even though of course I could have put that together. I'm a grief counselor. Right. Um, But somehow it just it just flooded me, this idea of of the things we do to honor, that also must be very triggering. Well, yeah, and it's those holidays,
2: most recently being Memorial Day. And Memorial Day is an emotion-laden holiday for families of the fallen for two reasons. One is it is this federal holiday that's been around since since right after the Civil War to honor the fallen. Okay, and up until fifty years ago, till nineteen sixty eight, it was always celebrated on May the thirtieth. And then it was a congressional law that changed it to make it into a three-day weekend. And when that happened, one of the unintended consequences is Memorial Day went from being a day, a Memorial Day, to being an event.
1: hmm Yes. And I can
2: imagine that. It has evolved into this event. And all the fun-filled stuff that takes place, you know, being you know solemn and sober and honoring the fallen... Usually takes falls pretty
1: low in the priority list. Uh, I, I guess one thing I want listeners to take away, just since probably most of us are in that ninety nine percent, right, yeah. uh, is um, never say oh. Happy Memorial Day. Yes, that just seemed like such an important message. Uh, and maybe whether or not you know that somebody is a gold star family somebody has lost someone because you can't really know that for sure could you no you can't
2: and you know it's funny because I was up in New York City over Memorial Day uh, for an interview to to do some, some interviewing for the book and I'm sensitive to Happy Memorial Day although I'm not as sensitive as others are and um but I know how just how devastating it is to somebody when someone to a gold you know, a gold star family, they say, Well, have a happy memorial day. Right. And what people said, Well, what do you say in return? You know, they don't want to get mad at them. And I started doing this when I was in the city. And every time somebody said, Well, hey, yeah, you have a happy memorial day, I'd say, Thank you. You enjoy the weekend and remember the fallen too. And I had a moderately good
1: success rate with that, even in New York City. Um that people registered that it, that it wasn't just uh, let's go have a barbecue. Yeah, they they yeah, connected yeah. the two. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that just seemed crucial that uh, you know I'm I'm old enough to have um, been around when people came back from Vietnam and and all of the damage right. was done oh. to people around um, the not differentiating between whether. We agreed with the war, right, right? And and whether we supported the people who had gone, and uh, so I had some sensitivity because of that uh, mm-hmm. life experience. But um, I th- I think we can always use more. Right. That that seems just uh, crucial. Right. To
2: Cheryl, excuse me, yes. may I share a story with you
1: about the experience I had with Vietnam survivors and writing this book? I would love that, and it's time for a break, so okay. why don't we start there when we come back? Excellent. Okay. And listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Uh, for all, all links to everything I do, I just want to also say there's a, li- a special link at the top of the page to the novel I've written, A Ocean Between Them, about a mother and daughter finding their way back to each other after the daughter's cancer diagnosis. And to find Joanne Steen, you can go to griefsolutions.net. Be back soon.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness.
3: What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet?
0: Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. health and wellness channel your
3: life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
0: you are listening to good grief with cheryl jones
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Joanne Steen, author of We Regret to Inform You, about the book uh, for Gold Star Parents and about her experience working with the military in grief. And before the break, Joanne, you mentioned that you had done some some somewhat recent work with um, vets from Vietnam, Mm -hmm. um, and I... uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about that, even though it's, you know, slightly to the side of what we're here to talk about, but I think it's so important as sure. something we all um, deal with in our culture. Sure. Here's the experience that I had, and it's still, it still
2: shocks me, is that when I put out to, to garner interviews to look for people to be interviewed, I had a number of Gold Star moms come forward and some Gold Star dads from Vietnam, where they lost children in Vietnam. And I was pretty surprised given the amount of time that's gone by. And what they said was they said they got no support and no nothing. You know, you couldn't talk about your loss in public because the war was so distasteful. And the mm. first time I heard this statement, I thought it was one-off. And then I heard it more. And that's they said that there were times, depending upon where they lived and how the death was reported, that they would have people call them and say, I don't feel sorry for you. You know, your son or your husband killed women and children.
1: Oh, I I just can't even fathom how that must feel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You know, just so, so excruciating. Yeah. And so, so disenfranchising.
2: So a lot of them, no one had ever talked about it and no one had even said, we appreciate that your, you know, your son or daughter served. Now, fast forward this into how why our country maybe is so disconnected from the military is that one of the misconceptions we have is that service members only die in war, and our last experience with war left us in a, a bad place. But reality is, United States loses somewhere between two to three service members every day in line of duty deaths that are not associated with combat.
1: That, that also was a stunning fact. Right. Uh, of course, it made sense as soon as I read it. Yeah. Of course, <laughs> right, that would right. be true. Right. And and we do occasionally hear about it when it's more dramatic. Right. Uh, when it's newsworthy. Newsworthy. But the idea that every day that's happening and every sure. day people's doors are being approached by a notification team. That's right. Um, it, it, uh. I absorbed that in a different way, right? Yeah, that's putting myself that, in those shoes. Sure, it's something that we wouldn't normally realize because
2: they don't make the news. They, they're not newsworthy deaths, but you know, the, cut, the, the one state that ranks at the top of both taking casualties from Iraq and Afghanistan, and also in losing service members, is California because of the large number, and there is a large number that serve from California. And they ranked number
1: one in terms of casualties coming out
2: of Iraq and Afghanistan.
1: Which, being in the in a big urban center like I am, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a, I'm in Oakland, right near San mm-hmm. Francisco. Yes, um, that uh, we get a little out of touch with that too. Sure. Uh, because less common in in this center in L.A. I think. Right. Um So. Um, that's that's also a little stunning, you know, that, sure. that we have the highest rate and that there isn't much attention in the state to the ongoingness of that. Right, right. And yet, you know,
2: those personnel that die in the line of duty but not in combat, they die in some really, really serious ways that are job-related. You know, we have, we have other military operations that go on around the country other than Vietnam and Afghanistan. I mean, sorry, Vietnam, we're just talking about that. Than Iraq and Afghanistan. We have we have we have forces in other places. We have other military operations. We do, you know, we do peacekeeping with NATO. We have forces there. We do humanitarian. We do, you know, we do joint exercises so that we can be operationally ready when we have to serve with another country. And, you know, my husband my, my first late husband died in a, was killed, excuse me, There's terminology is correct, and he was killed. Um, he was killed in a training accident. And afterwards, people said, well, it was just a routine training accident. And I'm sitting there shaking my head going, no, on routine training accidents, men don't die. <laughs> right. You know? Right. That, and, I, and I tried to explain to him, they said, well, it was, they were just training. I said, well, what do you think they were training for? You know? They were training to keep those skills current, much like, you know, because if if or when they got called to go to go someplace in a you know in a in a defensive or an offensive posture,
1: you're going to make sure they're really skilled. And what do you think people meant by they were just training? I'm not well, sure I understand what what uh, yeah. what that meant to the people saying it. Were they min- right. were they minimizing something? Yes. Were they yeah? Uh, and so then the the effect on you is somehow to be disenfranchised as a military sure. widow. Sure, it minimizes your loss. It
2: minimizes their service. And as you look to make meaning of a death, if someone's killed, now there's a difference between being killed in combat in an active combat role but being killed, let's say, in Afghanistan, but not in combat. So imagine what families have to contend with when they say, well, my my son was killed in Afghanistan, and people jump to the conclusion it's war, because in our mind we have this this mindset of military personnel dying in war, and they say, well, what happened? And the family has to say, well, to be honest with you, it was an equipment failure, and he was electrocuted while taking a shower. And, and that's, I mean, that's a real example, but people go, really, you know, really? And so to them, that's even like a less, that's a disenfranchising moment. They're there. You mean you went all the way over there and got electrocuted?
1: And and as as if that's less related to the fact that we're deployed in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's, it's directly related to that fact. I know. And the fact is this, is that, you know, we all,
2: Sometimes the meaning of a death is clear, you know, and we can make meaning of it. But the other times we have to find meaning. And families of the fallen find meaning in their loved one's service. Okay, They find meaning in the fact that in this world, that their loved one, their son, daughter, spouse, was willing to raise their right hand and take an oath to protect this country especially when
1: 99.5% of the country doesn't. Right. And are you saying that that's harder to do, it's harder to make that meaning? Because I agree that is a big part of moving forward. Sure. Um, I, are, are you saying it's harder to do if the, de- if the death, if they were killed in a, in a uh, non-combat, idiots, non-combat related right. uh, manner? It
2: takes longer for, pay, mm. for for them to to make their peace with it, and it all goes down to making peace with the circumstances that you have. And somebody said to me recently, Cheryl. They said, "Well, they said my my husband was a hero," and I said, "No, he wasn't." And, and they looked at me rather you know rather flabbergasted. They said, "What do you mean? If you're a gas. what do you mean he wasn't a hero?" I said, "He died doing his job." And his, if his job means that he, he needs to train to be operationally ready to defend this country, then that's, that's a pretty cool job. That's a pretty good purpose. And I'm okay with
1: that. That's interesting. So, uh, you know, that's that happens even in civilian life that someone kind of does the natural thing like the woman who just protected Kamala Harris on the stage the other day yes. um, it, it just was impulse right sure. and right. I heard her interviewed and she was saying I didn't feel heroic I was just mm-hmm. like oh no I can't let this happen right. You know. Um, so the difference between the experience of the family or the person and how it's viewed also creates a disconnect I imagine yes yes it does you know, but I, I, I go back to saying his job was, was being operationally ready to protect America. That was his job. Right, right. Now, do you, I, I had a curiosity that you didn't address in the book, which is whether, uh, you know, I know that not every parent whose son or daughter joins the military is happy about that. Uh-huh. Um, some are very proud, very happy, very. Supportive. Mm -hmm. Um, Others are kind of alienated about it. Right. And I wonder how you think uh, alienation, when it happens, how does that affect the grieving person? Because I would imagine it would be devastating to have not believed in it in some way or other and then have your child killed. Do you think that makes a difference? Of course it does. What
2: well, my experience is this is that I mean I did I, I interviewed I can't remember I can't remember the number of people I interviewed and more often than not, okay I can't think of one who said I was opposed to you know I feel I feel my well even those that said even those that said they were opposed to their child joining they somehow because they need to find meaning in it they somehow said but. You know, he or she was doing this of their own choice. Nobody was making them doing it, and I have to respect that. Yes,
1: of course. Right. I,
2: I can imagine and,
1: that too. I right. just, I just was. Um, you know, for for instance, I could imagine there being a special kind of guilt that you didn't try to talk them out of it harder, or you know. Uh, but yeah. maybe maybe put, people wouldn't even want to talk about that well either. sure the thing is there's there's two
2: sides to that guilt coin and this surprised me and because parents are you know they're always going to be a parent to their child even if the child is 50 years old and in uniform but i can remember so distinctly a dad saying to me that he failed to protect his child he goes i failed to protect my child and It was in context, he felt that that was his job as a parent. In reality, his child was 38 years old, was married, was the father of several children, and had a very successful military degree. But to the parent, you know, that's still that the guilt was that he failed to protect his
1: child. And that, that's not a one-off. I've heard that more often than not. I can so imagine that because right. even with my grown children, mm-hmm. uh, they are all fully independent. They support mm-hmm. themselves. They have relationships. They live places, you know. But sure. they're, when they're suffering, there's a pull, an unmistakable pull towards protection that cannot be realized. Yes. But it's still an emotional pull. Sure. So yeah. that's not hard for me to picture yeah. at all that that was a factor. Yeah, absolutely. I've had veteran fathers
2: and to some extent veteran mothers who have said, maybe if I didn't join the military, my son, my daughter didn't wouldn't have followed in my footsteps. Maybe and, and you know, when you get rational, they say, so Well, maybe I'm to blame for this. I'm to i ca- I'm the cause of this. If I didn't do this, they wouldn't have followed in, in my footsteps.
1: And, of course, that's also, in my mind, uh, a really uh, not quite universal, but almost universal phenomenon of grief, especially at the start. How could this not have happened? Right. And, And sometimes... Uh, it makes no logical sense, no. you know, <laughs> but, but it's very compelling emotionally. What could okay. I have done? What could someone have done? Right. Um, and I, I could imagine that it would be particularly intense for, for military parents.
2: Right, right.
1: What I try to do when, when I come across those parents is to have them break
2: it down into very small segments and say, you served you know, you served your country, are you, are you happy, are you proud of your service? And they'll say yes. I said, did you serve with any type of, you know, any type of, um, I don't want to say malcontent, but with any motive other than honorable? Well, no. You know, so I said, so the example you set for your child wasn't one of, you know, a dishonor, you were serving honorably something you believed in. Well, yes. So try to get them to understand that that child was emulating, something that was identified as honorable or as value added or purposeful and the things they did wasn't wasn't malicious the things the parents did wasn't malicious it was
1: just that the child chose to follow in their footsteps which very often parents are very proud of that it's almost as if i can imagine those two things living in different realms of the mind Mm-hmm. yeah uh, you know That's to sort of be, to say be proud of the service and feel um right. honored that your child followed your footstep in that way and to feel guilty that they died right in the service of that I could imagine because grief of course is many things at once not
2: <laughs> none of which is logical or rational <laughs>
1: <laughs> no it isn't is it no <laughs> sort of tangle of the threads there but yes. um You know, you talk in another part of the book about this kind of perfect storm idea of all these different factors that intensify potentially, um, make more stormy um, this form of grief. And um, one thing you talk about quite a bit, uh, which I'd like to just begin, and then we have a break in a couple of minutes, but... um, I was very interested in the section that you started off talking about men in grief, and I was thinking, I wonder if two being part of the military, men men related to the military might even bring another aspect to that. But then you also talked about intuitive versus instrumental grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really resonated with me because of course, I've known people in um, non-stereotypic, relationships to grief you know they didn't grieve like a woman or grieve right. like a man they right. they had certain things that happened so I wonder if we could start talking about that and then continue after the bake sure be happy to uh, you know
2: one of the things is that is I, I really think men get the short end of the stick when it comes to grief I do and because we condition them, to be strong, silent. You know, we start with kids. You know, big boys don't cry. And so we teach them to control their emotions. You know, our stereotypes is one of the provider, one of the protector. And when we see them in, in, a, in a public setting, we expect them to look somber, you know, maybe look grim, but we don't expect them to lose emotional control. Mm-hmm. And if perchance they do, and I'm not talking about full out emotional control, if they just start to cry or they wipe tears away, they feel they failed they feel that they fail to keep themselves together they failed they failed themselves they failed the families and they failed the memory of their child but they feel like they failed and yet in private we expect men to grieve like you know grieve like a woman our grief model in the united states is one of emotion and it isn't quite like that and i think the work by dr doka and dr um, Oh gosh, Doka and Martin, Dr. Martin is one that says, Hey, there's these different grieving styles in the United States, basically all over. Predominantly, men, a lot of men are instrumental grievers where they grieve through thought and they grieve through action. Some women are like that too. Some are a combination of
1: both. Absolutely. I'm a combination of both. And I think actually uh, it it is um, a limited use. usefulness because everybody has a bit of both typically Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we fall at different points along the spectrum but um let's when we come back let's talk about what uh intuitive grieving might look like and what instrumental grieving might look like because uh if assuming we will in in our lives encounter people who are going through this type of loss Mm -hmm. um that happens even though most of us are not in the military. Right. I think it's a really important concept, both for those losses and for other ones. Um, oh, sure. People yeah. grieve differently. So yeah. let's come back to that after the break. we Will do. Um, and listeners you can go to my website weatherandgrief.com you can go to the good grief host page to get in touch with me I would love to hear what you think of the show what's particularly helpful to you and and if you ever have guests you'd like me to try to have on the show that's great to hear about too and to find Joanne Steen you can go to griefsolutions.net back after the break
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: Ready to transform your health and your world? Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel.
3: Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Joanne Steen, author of We Regret to Inform You. We've been talking about parents who have have had a child killed while serving in the military. And Joanne, uh, I'm... I'm, uh, Hoping that you could read a a piece from uh, a little later in the book. Uh, It's slightly, I guess, slightly chronological, the book, I feel. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, I Mm -hmm. really liked how each section was very short and there was some repetition. I just Mm -hmm. wanted to mention that because I think that works for people who are grieving but I, I love this little list you made of the moving forward, uh, indicators of moving forward. Uh, could you share that piece from the book? I will. You know, And, and I just you're a grief counselor,
2: so you'll understand this. And it's important to be said is that there's a major difference between moving on and moving forward. Amen and, to that. Yes. And when some families told me well, you've got to move on with your life, that to them implies being emotionally disconnected from their loved one. But when you move forward, you take you take the memories and you take those continuing bonds with you. And sometimes families don't want to move forward because they feel that if they did those things, then it would mean they love their their son or daughter less. But here are some ways that I, I pointed out to families that they are moving forward. One is that when you get out of bed and you don't dread the day when you can feeling sad one moment and happy the next almost instantaneously when you balance a fragile present with the pull of the past thinking more of your child's life than the circumstances of the death no longer bringing up your child's death in every conversation understanding that levels of grief and peace of mind can coexist finding comfort in memories of your son or daughter Enjoying yourself and not feeling too guilty. Taking a time out from grief. Gosh, that's so important. Mm. And reinvesting in life without guilt and building personal resiliency and strength. These are all indicators, really good indicators of moving forward.
1: Which, which uh, I would emphasize, it's, it's almost like that typically sneaks up on people. Uh, in the sense that at first you can't imagine any of those things. Right, right. <laughs> and then at some point, you the day ends and you realize it happened. Sure. Yeah, uh, i got to share with you an incredible, i got to
2: share with, with your audience too, this incredible aha moment that I had about moving forward. And when my, my late husband was killed and sometime afterwards, I was out with another military widow. She was a pilot's widow. So we, we, we understood each other without words. And I asked her and I said, how do I know when I'm getting better? And her answer said, one of these days you're going to get up one morning and he's not going to be the first thing you think about. Mm. Whoa,
1: really? How is that possible? (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I guess I would say, uh, you know, there's a sense of rotation in your list, you know, feeling good and then feeling bad, but I found for myself I feel good and bad at the same time.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) You know, that I learned a lot about having conflicting emotions simultaneously. Yes. Uh, And maybe that's part of how um, retaining that relationship with the person who's died continues, you know, that, that you can because There are those two tracks going on. Mm -hmm. Still, obviously, for me, look what I do for a living. But I think even for people who don't. I agree. Look what I do for a living. We're in the same position, you know? Right, right. I wondered about that a little bit. Uh, And uh, I want to ask you briefly about this and then move on to talking about how to support people, which we've we've spoken to a bit. But um, you wrote your initial book, which I feel many people just have that strong impulse to be helpful with their own experience. But in writing this book, it was different from your own experience, but it must have brought up your experience quite a bit to write it. And I understand you're immersed. This is what you do for work. But but was that? um, How was that for you? surprisingly, the
2: first book was much harder than the second because I did have, but it was harder in different ways. Um, it was harder, the first book, because I did bring back my personal experience with it. With the second book, and it was a gold star mom who said to me, she said, if you wrote a book for widows, when are you going to write a book for us? She said, we need a book too. Hmm. And that was, that was was that was the inspiration to do it. And my first reaction was, I can't do this. One was, because of my late husband's death, I never had children. So I never had children. I've never lost one. And I didn't feel I was in a rightful place to do that. But my counseling background taught me that I could take in what I had learned, and I found that in doing so, I was able to take in their stories and take in take in their experiences and their pains and their heartaches without my own personal, um, basically, lens on it. So I wasn't because doing it was it, a
1: different experience. Very much so. I see so, what you're saying. Yeah. So the topic
2: itself, writing about the loss of a child, I believe, is the, the worst. Well, actually, the only thing worse than writing about it is to lose a child. Right. But to have to put yourself in that environment and to write and to write as, you, as you're talking to a parent was, was physically and emotionally draining.
1: But, but possible to do, and it sounds as if you had a, or feels as if you had a passion to do it. Uh, somewhere can- along yeah. Somewhere along the line,
2: this book became, you know, it was very purpose it was very important from the beginning and it felt it met it filled this unmet need in, in grief literature and it filled a void in military grief. And somewhere along the line it became a purpose. It was something that it was my purpose to do this.
1: You know, I I may be projecting on this, but all these things I do that relate to the loss of my spouse, Mm -hmm. uh, there's something also, it can be triggering, yes, Mm -hmm. but it's also deeply satisfying because I'm not, I'm not wasting that experience. I I don't know how else to say it. Uh, I feel that I feel I can use my experience in a way that's really of service and that um, I also imagine that in putting myself in your shoes that you might feel that way about it. I, so before, I, I don't want to let you go without, of course, the last uh, bunch of the book, f- last few chapters really have to do with how to be of support, how to be right. there. And um, I wonder if you can just say a little bit about the best practices, let's sure. say, for for showing up for people when they're having parents, when they're having this kind of loss sure you know one of the things as we all know that happens
2: is that you get a lot of support immediately and what you do have is you have the family the friends they rally around you they they offer you support they stay with you they bring you food and things of this nature and somewhere around the three-month mark it all goes away and you realize sometimes for the first time that you are alone Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that I believe we can help, and not everybody is a listener, not everybody wants to, t- to carve time out or has the capability to do it to go and to sit with someone and to listen and to hear these really painful s- painful, and sorrowful stories. But what we can do is we can help out in practical ways. So if you have a family, it doesn't matter if it's military or civilian, you have somebody in your, in your neighborhood, they have endured a loss. You know, we could just practice those little acts of kindness. Take their garbage cans back in. You know, if it's if it's a single mom or a single dad, they're doing it all on their own. And we can do those little things. We could say, hey, do you need your car inspected? I'll go do it. You know, and we could skip all of the casseroles and the lasagnas and the veggie things. And we could give them maybe a coupon to go buy food where, you know, like some of the delivery services where you can you – can, Deliver in a meal that's healthy and and satisfying. We could do little yes. things like that. But the most important thing, I believe, is um, and it makes it just drives me up a tree is when someone will say to me, "Oh, I really want to remember them at this tar- at this sad time, but I don't want to disturb them." One is you're not disturbing them if on the first anniversary or the second anniversary of the loss or the 10th anniversary, you call them up and you say, you know what? I remember that today is the day that your David died. And I want to let you know that I remember that.
1: And I can imagine there's a natural uh, swing to that because of things like Memorial Day and Veterans Day. Sure. You can absolutely guarantee that those parents are thinking about their kid that day. Sure. Sure. And so to say, this must be um, this this day must have a particular impact for you. And I'm thinking about you. I can't imagine that could be wrong.
2: No, yeah.
1: I have a widow.
2: I have a widowed friend. We 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 did a support group twenty some years ago, and every year on her crash date, um, I send her a card. And over you know it started out that they were so. And she sends me one. I haven't seen her in 10 years, maybe 15 years. But I can count on getting a card around that time. You know, and over years, they've changed from cards of comfort. And sometimes they were funny. And sometimes they're just, what's going on with you? They've evolved as life has evolved. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed now is that now as we're getting older, they're going back. And we're celebrating those benchmarks of time, you know, Uh. Beautiful you celebrate those benchmarks of time, which are so, they're so sobering. They don't As, go away, do they? No, no. <laughs> yeah. They become more reflective now, you know. Yeah. And, uh,
1: and there's a lot more added. Uh, for me, at least, the more time that goes by, it's been, you know, decades now. Sure. Um, right. The more different kinds of experiences come into it. There's um, all this work that's come out of it. And there's. Right. My new marriage, and there's, you know, there's, sure. uh, changes over time. You know, we never got back to these these different styles of grieving. I know, um, I know. But uh, I guess the sum up on that, as we as we get ready to close for the day, is people grieve differently, and and none of them none of the ways are wrong. Could right. we sum it up that way? And we maybe sure could. we'll talk again someday about um, these kind it. of uh, general styles of grieving and and um, what they look like. I'd um, love to. It makes a world <laughs> okay. of difference to the
2: men and the women. They love
1: that topic. <laughs> That's right. So I want to thank you for being here. Thank and you. Thank you for the work that you do. Oh, thank you. Vice versa. And uh, listeners, you can find Joanne Steen at griefsolutions.net. Next week, I'll have Donna O'Donnell Fugerski. will be talking about her experience as a caregiver, which she wrote about in her memoir, Prisoners Without Bars. Mm. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.